Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's up, Todd? Hey, Corey. Hey, we have a special guest with us today. We want to welcome our good friend, Representative Stephanie Grishius. Welcome, Steph. Thank you. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, happy to be here. And we're so happy to have you here, and you're one of my favorite people, so I want everybody to know that. <laughs> and as we get started here, uh, we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. So which district do you represent? How'd you get your start in the legislature? Yeah, so District 50, it's the Eagle Mountain, Cedar Valley area, and then I go down the backside of Utah Lake to Janola and West Mountain. Um, it was an open seat created with redistricting. I have experience on the city council and it was a good opportunity to take the next step. Very good. But you've been politically active for a while, I think more than that, right? Yes, I actually got my start protesting. Um, Senator Weiler was in the legislature when Eagle Mountain was put on the short list for the prison relocation. And mm. I attended all of those meetings and started the opposition group out in this area. And Speaker Wilson was actually the chairman of that commission at the time. So he and I have some history, but it's it's been great anyway. Good stuff. So this is your first session, and I know it's been an eventful one for you. So we want to hear your perspectives. What is it, what is it like to be a first-time lawmaker? And what surprised you? You know, uh, I'm sure there are things that were surprising that are both positive and negative. So I wonder if you could... Give us an inside view on what's what it's like. It has been so incredibly fun. Um, honestly, that's surprise. I know everyone kept saying it's going to be so fun. You're going to love your first session. There's there's no way to describe like how much I've been enjoying it. The people, the process, the policy, everything about it has just been so incredibly fun. Um, and honestly, that that's even though they warned me that it was going to be great was probably the most surprising part of everything was just how fun it really is. And you think that's going to be a function of just your first time or you think it's probably going to be fun next year, too? Well, we'll see how it goes next year. Um, for first time, a lot of it's been learning the process um, and that's been enjoyable. The procedure everything, really getting into the policy, deep diving into some things. And so I imagine some of that will kind of wear off over time, but I'm still getting hit with the fire hose. So I expect next session should at least be equally good. I, I will say, if I could jump in, Corey, my first session was probably the most fun. And now my sessions are just a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you have to look forward to, it sounds like. Oh, I, I ran seven bills, so I uh, wasn't sitting on my hands. That's oh, that's awesome. Sure. And I, and, uh, I want to ask you about those, one in particular, but I want to hear about, about, uh, about a few of them at least. But first, I know this is going to be, this is a question that our, that our Utah media, I mean, they like to remind us at every turn that most of the legislators are males, particularly on the Republican side, and, you know, for better or worse. You're obviously a female legislator, and so I just wanted to put the question to you. What have been your impressions as a, a female legislator? And we'd love to hear your perspective on whether it mattered or not and how. Yeah, so it's not better or worse, male or female, but it is different. It's absolutely different. Um, 
by and large, I have not had any issues um, stemming from my gender being different. Also, when I was on city council, I mean, that's seen more of a male world too, politics in general. So I'm not new to that. Um, occasionally, people will make comments like, oh, who's watching your kids? I'm like, well, they have two parents, you know, they do have a dad. <laughs> um, and he's capable of parenting too. So that's kind of one of the more yeah, interesting yeah. questions. And it's not meant as a sexist question. It's just general curiosity and innocence usually. But I don't think that they ask the men that particular question. Um, I have, as far as colleagues within the legislature, I haven't had any issues. There have been one or two lobbyists that have been particularly pushy. And I don't know if it's age or if it's gender or if it's just the fact that I'm the new kid on the block. Um, but I did have to set some hard boundaries up front as far as that goes. Uh, but in general, I mean, I have a different set of tools at my disposal and that's all right. That's awesome. So I think you sparked another question in my mind. So when you're when you're dealing with lobbyists, this is something that people always want to know about. Like, what's that like? What's the relationship like? And, and how have you found it? It depends on the lobbyist. Um, most of them have been great. They've been very helpful. They've been very easy to work with. There have been a couple that have been very much less great. Um, but the antagonistic relationship starts from them. I like to approach it from, hey, let's work together. Let's see what we can figure out. But if they're going to be antagonistic, that's when I have to set some hard lines down. All right. So uh, you talked about a couple of the bills you had, and I'd like to hear about which ones are uh, were most important to you, or at least on your top of your list. But you had one bill in particular that garden, garnered quite a bit of attention, uh, even some national attention, and it relates to who can drive in the high occupancy vehicle lane on the freeway. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that bill essentially said if you are pregnant, then there are two people in the car and you can use the high occupancy vehicle lane because the rule is two or more people. Um, it's life affirming. So how the left gets us is they insert their ideals into the day-to-day -day and we become desensitized to it. And this was my way of kind of pushing back and renormalizing the fact that an unborn child is a second person. They do have their own body. And on top of that, there's some unintended consequences, you know, like better air quality because our HOV lanes are underutilized. So by moving some women over, we can free up congestion, which we know leads to better air quality. Um, so there, you know, there were some other good things that have come from it too. Not to mention, I know you haven't been pregnant, but you have kids. So <laughs> you know that if a woman is pregnant and she needs a bathroom, that extra five minutes is a big deal. Absolutely. So, One last question on this. Are you going to return to it next year? It, 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 fell, it fell short this year. Are you going to give it another try next year? Yeah, the pushback's in the Senate. So we're going to start it on the Senate side next year. So Senator Weiler, that will be coming your way. Senator Kennedy is going to run that. He and I have been discussing it. And then I'll pick it back up when it comes back to the House. I did not get a chance to vote on that because I believe it died in committee. It did, yeah. By one vote. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> when I joined the legislature, I had an eight-year-old daughter, a 10-year-old son, a 14-year-old son, and a 17-year-old son. And nobody asked me who was watching my kids. So yeah. I, I didn't think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, 
any other bills, cool bills you want to tell us about? And uh, especially if they passed. Yeah, we uh, we just passed off the Senate and concurred on the House side uh, mental health licensing reform. So awesome. last year, the legislature reduced the number of clinical hours, but they did not reduce the supervision hours. So if someone finished their clinical hours in the 18 months, they still had 25 more supervision hours. And so there was kind of a mismatch. And so we cleaned that up. But then we also expanded telehealth. So you can now access mental health telehealth services across state lines. Cool. So awesome. And it that passed. One passed. That one passed. And yeah. then I'm working on firearms and airports right now. <laughs> Just got that committee. <laughs> so that'll be a fun one too. All right. Thank you so much, Representative Gricious, and congratulations on a successful uh, first session. And we look forward to chatting with you for many more. Um, Sounds great. Thanks, gentlemen. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Stephanie. The House and Senate Republicans and legislature unveiled the tax relief proposal this week. Utah taxpayers would receive about $400 million in tax relief. More than half of the package, $208 million, would come from lowering Utah's income tax rate from 4.85% to 4.65%. That would return an average family of four making $80,000 a year, about $208 uh, a reduction in their tax liability. Other elements of the bill include expanding the Social Security tax credit eligibility to individuals earning up to $75K per year, Provides a tax benefit for pregnant women by allowing a double independent, excuse me, double dependent exemption for children in the year of their birth. And it increases the earned income, income tax credit from 15% to 20% of the federal tax credit. So while the, uh, the Utah media screams about how this is a giveaway to the rich, distribution tables actually show a different story. So low income households would see a 22% tax cut. Middle-income households would see a 6% tax cut, and high-income households would see a 4% tax cut. Todd, what else can you tell us about this package? Well, one of the favorite games of the left and of the Democrats is whenever there's an income tax cut to say that this is only going to benefit the rich. And um, it's it's a half-truth, and because of that, you know, they don't get fact-checked on it like they should. And so you know, let me just reiterate all of our, you know, a lot of our surplus has come through the income tax fund. And so people are like, well, if you have so much extra money, then why don't you cut the sales tax on food? Well, that's general fund. Income tax is is, is an earmarked fund. So we, we can't do a, a trade-off, which is why we're saying we need to eliminate the constitutional earmark. So we could do trade-offs like that. Um, but second of all, Every single person and every single business that pays income tax will get a tax, will get some relief. And so while it's true, if you don't, if you pay no income tax, we can't cut your income tax because you're already at zero. But there is money in here, as you, you know, as you articulate, that's already set aside for the poor, many of whom don't pay any income tax. And so you know, Mitt Romney got in trouble when he said, you know, 49% don't pay federal income tax, which was actually pretty accurate. <laughs> but um, apparently, you're not allowed to say that out loud. So, um, and what everybody overlooks here, you know, the Tribune immediately came out and said, oh, it's only $17 a month for the average family. Okay, 
Well, let's run with that. $17 a month is almost $200 a year. And this will be the third time in the last four years that we've cut taxes. So take that $200 a year and multiply it. Now it becomes three, you know, 300, $350, $400 a year. And that's $4,000 over the next decade. So that's, you know, that's college tuition for one semester or two semesters, depending on which college you go to. And this idea, I had, you know, Nate Bluen, uh, Senator Bluen and others, you know, like, oh, well, most people would rather the government keep that money. Well, A, that's not true. Most of your liberal friends. But, you know, uh, I love to point out, and we did this like 10 years ago, there's a form on your state tax, uh, on your state tax form that you'll, you know, that will be due on April 15th. If you want to pay more state taxes, you can. We've yeah. made that form available. You can just fill in as much as you want. You can take your extra $17 a month. And by the way, that's $17 a month forever for the rest of your life. You can pay as many extra taxes, but they don't want to pay the extra taxes. They want all of us um, exactly. to pay all the, the taxes. So that's number one. But number two, what people don't seem to focus on is we are competing with our neighboring states for um, um, capital investments when businesses are looking to grow their workforce and, and expand high paying jobs. We don't want them to go to Arizona or Nevada or Idaho or Colorado. We want them to stay in Utah or come to Utah. And so when we cut that income tax rate, that applies to individuals and it applies to businesses because um you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, you know, and, and so we want to remain competitive. We want businesses to continue to invest their capital in our state. And that second part is very, very important and it's always overlooked or it's mocked by the media, but it has been working very effectively for Utah. Completely. That's the point that I really want to make, too, is that other states are lowering their rates or eliminating their state income tax altogether. and. That creates pressure for Utah to make itself more competitive and appealing to businesses to keep the uh, job creation going in the state. And this is uh, it's the same issue that we're dealing dealing with on a international level too. the the Biden administration wants to increase the, the international business tax on on American companies, but not on foreign companies to make us even less competitive. Well, companies are smart. You know, they're going to take a good hard look. We just had a huge expansion with Texas Instruments here in Lehigh, an announcement made. And I, it's really exciting and really cool, but you better believe that they had many other options. <laughs> and uh, and we have, to, we have to take the world as it is. And I think it's a good thing anyway, that um, you know, the, more, the more money businesses and are here and can create jobs, the more revenue that's generated. And so yeah. um, it drives me crazy, like you said, that the, the, the response of our Utah media and, and, you know, certain legislators where it's not even clear they have a day job where, you know, like it's such a piddling amount. But I mean, returning money to the taxpayers is just that you're, you're giving the money back. It's not the government's money. It's the taxpayers money. And so the attitude that this is this is the government's that you're taking away from whatever spending program. It's just backwards. That's not the way to look at it. Yeah, it's it goes right along with the same logic that in a year when we are making almost double the highest investment we've ever had of new money into public education, that somehow we're taking money away from public education <laughs> by funding a $42 million voucher, you know, yeah. voucher school choice program. So, Corey, just to put this in perspective, if I gave you $1,000 and I gave Stephanie 
$4 and you went home and told your wife and kids, Todd Weiler just took $4 away from me. <laughs> and I yeah. said, I just gave you $1,000. And you said, yes, but you could have given me $1,004. And instead you took $4 away from me and gave it to Stephanie. That is the argument that the education community, the teachers union is making. That, that yeah. I, That's exactly the argument that they're making. Uh, somehow I took $4 away from you. Representative Jordan Tusher has a bill that would preclude a primary election if a candidate receives 70% or more of the vote at the party convention. That would mean that even if a candidate collected enough signatures to qualify for the primary ballot, that person, that candidate, or those candidates would be automatically eliminated and no party primary would be held for that office. So Representative Tusher's bill passed the House, but sounds like Senate leadership says they don't have the votes uh, and have decided not to not to bring it up in the Senate. Um, proponents argue that uh, this bill, HB 393, would save money while shifting more importance to the caucus and convention process. Representative Tusher has argued that it wouldn't completely remove the signature gathering process, but it would create full, uh, more, more incentive for candidates to participate at the convention to prevent their opponents from, from reaching the 70% threshold. So I want to hear what you think, Todd. I will just say, I mean, 70% is a pretty high bar. And I think it's true that every candidate that met that threshold easily won his or her primary election. In fact, uh, Representative Tusher is quoted as saying that he can't, he doesn't know of an example in recent years where a candidate in statewide race did get 70% of convention and then went on to lose in the primary. So remind me what Mike Lee got at convention last year. Well, so that's, uh, yeah. So the, the most noteworthy race um, was the U.S. Senate race last year, and Mike Lee received 71% of convention. So under this bill, it, that's the example of where Becky Edwards and Allie Isom would have been eliminated and, and that race would have fallen off the primary ballot. Of course, he did go on to win with 60% sure vote in the, so, uh, in the primary. So, so, so I just want to paint this picture. So both Becky Edwards and Allie Isom's campaigns, both of their campaigns spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, collectively over a half million dollars to gather signatures. And you're going to tell them after all of that money spent now that they don't get to even appear on a ballot. There's no other state that does that. Um, and I think that's problematic. Um, and of course, I think the idea behind Representative Tusher's bill is to discourage people from gathering signatures because it may be an investment, you know, that doesn't even get your name on a primary ballot. So, yeah, I, I don't think it has um, the votes to pass the Senate. And since um, Senate Bill 54 passed in 2014, we've seen the House pass several measures and the Senate's kind of been, um, you know, standing there at the at the gate. And so, Corey, I don't think you were living in Utah, but let me just briefly um, comment that the people that organized the Count My Vote campaign um, that originally had a petition uh, for a citizen's initiative that that was polling very high, like in the 70 percentile that the legislature reacted to. They went to the party when I was on the state central committee and said, if you'll just raise the threshold for a primary uh, from 60 percent to 70 percent, we will not do this. And the party didn't say no. They said hell no. And so you're right. 70 percent is a, as a high threshold. 
if the party would have agreed to that in 2013 or 2014, we would not have a signature path. And I and others were standing up and saying, let's just do the 70%. Let's just do the 70%. And all of the people, you know, who are thumping their chest saying, we have to do away with the signature path. They were saying, who are these people? We're not going to negotiate with them. We are the pure party. We're the party purists. And and the, and the last thing I'll tell you, and this is the funniest thing, we were at a 70% threshold in Utah for decades until around 2000. It might have been 98. It might have been 2002. Do you know why we moved from 70% to 60%? Was it something that Ronald Reagan said or Ted Cruz said? No, the Utah Democrats did it. And so we followed them. So we yeah. followed the Democrats. And I was at that convention. We followed them from 70% to 60%. And then somehow it became conservative to be at 60% and liberal to be at 70% when it was the liberals who went to 60% and we followed them. None of this makes sense. And all of this could have been avoided if the party would have agreed to go back to 70%. After a decade, we, we were at 70% all the way through the 90s, all the way through the 80s. I believe we were at 70% in the 70s. We went to the 60% for one decade, count my vote, said, go back to 70. And they said, oh, hell no, we're not doing that. What are you going to do about it? And that's how we ended up with a signature path. Mm. So a little history lesson for you and, and 70%. That is some really helpful history. So then I, I have one question for you. I mean, first, I think there's just something really cool about the convention system, I believe. Yeah. And I understand what the what the criticisms are, you know, the most frequent Criticism, obviously, is that fewer people get to participate as delegates, and it, it, so it limits the scope of who gets to vote. Yes. And there's yes. obviously some some truth to that. I'm not I'm not saying that that isn't a concern, but there's just something really cool about meeting candidates face to face and ha hearing their answers to questions, like face to face, kicking the tires on them, seeing them at multiple events, and you know, primary elections obviously are about name recognition and more than that about and and money and fundraising convention system is much more about convincing delegates one by one. And there's just something really cool and democratic about that, like small D democratic. So, yeah. so Todd, I guess the question I have for you is, I mean, you've obviously been around the block and you know this history better than anyone as, as well as anyone. I mean, do you think that it's, it's been almost a decade since SB 54. Is it time to revisit, revisit the issue at all? Or would you, do so, you think it's easy to die? So, um, so, let me tell you, as a legislator in 2014, I and the majority of the Republicans agreed that the convention system was worth saving. And that is why we voted for Senate Bill 54. And let me explain. In February of, of 2014, um, Count My Vote was gathering signatures for a citizen's initiative, which would have put us into a jungle primary um, um, basically with and it would have been the end of the convention um system now the 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 caucus purists will tell you oh that would have never have passed it was polling in the plus 70 percent it would have been on the ballot in november we as a senate caucus we looked at everything we could do including um running a campaign you know as soon as the signatures were turned in trying to strip off votes because you can get people to write in and remove their name in like some of the Senate districts, because you have to collect signatures all over the states. We considered every option. We were willing to use about $60,000 of our caucus money to try to remove votes to stop. 
we ultimately concluded that our efforts would likely fail, that it would go on the ballot, would pass. Now the now the far right people who hate the signature path, they'll tell you that we were wrong, that we made the wrong conclusion. We will never know. But something that's polling at 70% in February only had to get 50% plus one vote in November, okay? And they had millions and millions of dollars, Gail Miller, Mike Levitt, Mitt Romney, others behind them. And so we made the calculated decision to try to save the caucus system with Senate Bill 54. And I, I sincerely to this day believe that we saved the caucus convention system and we have been vilified, crucified, stabbed in the back for nine years. I, and, and Governor Herbert, you know, came out eventually in 2016 and said, I wish I would have never have signed Senate Bill 54. What he was saying, and people mis, misconstrued what he said, and I confirmed this with him privately, what he was saying was um, Senate Bill 54 has been so divisive and so, uh, you know, un, dis, you know it, it's caused so much conflict within the party. He wishes that he would have just let Count My Vote move forward had the vote, he believed also that count my vote would have passed and we would have just lost the convention caucus system completely. And he was saying it, it wasn't worth saving is what he was saying. And people will say, oh, see, Governor Herbert regret, regrets it. He regrets it, yes, but not for the reason that the delegate <laughs> thought he regretted it. So I know it's all revisionist history now. And all of these people you know, rose up and became influential in the party you know, promising to, you know, save the caucus and, and kill the convention, uh, kill the signature path. And, and here, here's the last thing I'll say. Those same people, those tens of millions of dollars have not gone away. So if we, everyone thinks, oh, if the legislature just flips a light switch, we can end the signature path. No, that initiative comes right back. And guess what? Now people, voters have seen the signature path for a decade and they like it. They don't want it to go away. And so I think there is more, it's more likely today that an initiative on that would pass than it was in 2014. And so everybody keeps on pressuring the Senate. Why don't you just go along? All the delegates want this because we still believe that we'll lose the entire caucus convention system if we back down. Count My Vote has never disassembled. So they still have an executive director. They're still active. They're still, um, and Gail Miller and, and, and Mike Levitt and Mitt Romney still have hundreds of millions of dollars. And so the, and this is the first time you and I have had that conversation. So, um, could the legislature repeal the signature path? Yes, we could do it tomorrow. Uh, would that end well? I don't believe it would, but other people, reasonable minds can disagree. And uh, and it's definitely the case. The count my vote was already said that they would get involved if if uh, if this bill were to pass. So, all right, that's the last word for today. Thanks. All right, thanks, Todd. All right, bye bye. Good.